Exits for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the adventures of comics Marvelous Mutants week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Now, it's super unusual that we would have an episode with only one segment, but this next interview spans almost an hour and a half, and it is with X-Men veteran legend Mike Carey. We cover everything in his career, it would seem, from his incredible novels to his comics at just about every studio, and it was such an incredible opportunity to talk with him about some of the most defining work in the last 20 years in comics. Now, for those of you who want to know a little bit more about Mike Carey and his work... We wanted to just make sure that it was easy for you guys to find this. So we discuss a lot about his Lucifer, which runs 75 issues, along with a one-shot special. He also did a Sandman miniseries known as Petrifax, which is four issues with X-Men veteran Steve Leoloa. His work on Hellblazer would stretch from Hellblazer 175 to 215. He would also pop back up at 229 with veteran ex-artist Jean-Paul Lyon. Several one-shots in hardcover form like God Save the Queen and the Furies, as well as other significant works like the adaptation of Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, his own Crossing Midnight, and more. As for his Marvel work, I wish we had a chance to discuss all of it like Spellbinders. We did, however, discuss Ultimate Electra 1 through 5, Ultimate Fantastic Four, 19 through 57, the Marvel Holiday Special, his run on X-Men starting with number 188 and ultimately ending with X-Men Legacy number 260. He would appear on titles like X-Men Manifest Destiny, X-Men Secret Invasion, and write two of the X-Men Origins one-shots, Beast and Gambit. It would be impossible to talk about the current state of the X-Men without giving some credit to Mike Carey for his work on things like Children of the Vault, redefining Rogue, and working to create a solvency between Xavier Xavier and Magneto. We hope you guys enjoy this next segment just as much as we enjoyed making it. If you like what you hear, don't forget to check us out over on YouTube where you can catch this as the Daily X every day, a different Marvel comic review or discussion up for your listening enjoyment. Don't forget to check us out over on Twitter and Patreon where you can like, subscribe, and help shape the future of the show. As always, guys, we love making this show for you twice a week, every week. Until next time, enjoy this last segment, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see ya. Welcome back to Exes for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Josh. You can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and asleepatthewheel.com. And for the next two years, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in the state of Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at for 3 That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. And now, heading from Drucifer to a guy who's probably best known for his breathtaking work on The Morning Star himself, Exes for Podcast is incredibly grateful to welcome Mike Carey to the show. Mike, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Good to meet you guys. 
So for those of you who are somehow unfamiliar with Mike Carey's work, which would mean that you probably skipped everything Marvel and Vertigo for a solid, like, two decades, right? Uh, Mike Carey is responsible for the breathtaking work on X-Men that led into the X-Men Legacy years and himself, the Penman, on X-Men Legacy, as well as the incredible work on Hellblazer, Unwritten, Lucifer, one of my all-time favorite stories from the Sandman universe, Petrifax, and the incredible Felix Castor novels, uh, the Rampart trilogy. It is so exciting to have you here to talk about all of this amazing work. Thank you. How is it now with uh, sort of the way your work has exploded in the last few years, your characters in X-Men and Lucifer on TV, Hellblazer in Legends of Tomorrow. How does it feel seeing this work everywhere? It's, uh, it's pretty cool. I, I have to say a lot of that stuff doesn't owe much to the source material. I really enjoy Lucifer, but insofar as it's based on anything, it's kind of based on um, on Neil's work in Sandman more than on my work in Lucifer, I think. Although some of the characters like Aminadiel were characters who I added to the mythos. But um, yeah, it, it, it's great that, uh, that stories that began in comics are now getting a a huge multimedia exposure. It's great that uh, so many of the things that I loved that were niche when I was a kid are now like culturally mainstream. And, and it's always exciting to see someone pick up um, a baton that you've tossed kind of thing. And I actually had the, the pleasure of speaking with your former editor, Alyssa Quitney. Yes. And she wrote a rogue novel in this last year and I said, oh, this is some of my favorite rogue work since Mike Carey on X-Men Legacy. And she absolutely went crazy and could not wait to read <laughs> every page of rogue you've ever done. And she wanted me to tell you that the two of you need to meet up when the whole world is back to normal and you two can grab a drink. That so. would be great. That would be great. She, uh, Lisa gave me my, uh, my big break. Uh, in fact, she did it twice. My first ever Vertigo work was commissioned by her. And then just before she went off on maternity leave, and actually in the end went off to become a, a writer rather than an editor, she also, the last thing she did was to ensure that I had uh, another commission, which was Petrifax. Um, so I, I owe her an enormous amount. And I also learned a lot about writing from her. That's, you know, she actually said almost the same thing about you. She said that while she did discover your script in sort of a, a pile of scripts, and it spoke to her, she discovered so much about character depth and nuance by working with you. And it's just so nice to hear two people I have such respect for have respect for each other, because I feel like that's rare nowadays. Yeah, I, I, I guess it is. I guess we're living in a kind of a cooler and a harsher age in some, time, in, in some ways. Elisa was, Elisa was amazing because you know, she'd studied narrative at university and she was just so switched on to story. She was a hands-on editor in all of the best senses. And I, I guess that was true of the Vertigo editors as a group. You know, they were all trained and inspired by Karen Hamburger, and um, there was an ethos there. And it was an ethos that was sort of based on uh, an absolute respect for story. And I guess the primacy of the writer um, as, as the sort of engine for story. Uh, you were allowed to call your own shots in ways that I don't think you were at other imprints necessarily. When we decided to end Lucifer after 75 issues, nobody suggested that we should carry it on. That was just taken as given that if the creative team wanted to wind up the story, they would be allowed to. And I really appreciate that you made a comment specifically about how you feel that Lucifer and a lot of the other TV work maybe borrows a bit more from Neil Gaiman's work. 
on the character than necessarily your narrative. Now, for my wedding, my husband got me a copy of the issue of Seasons of Mist with Morpheus and really? Lucifer, and we had it signed by Neil Gaiman. And cool. I have the key to hell sitting up on my desk. So <laughs> Lucifer is a big deal to me, and I frequently source your article that you wrote for the Vertigo on the Ledge column about how Lucifer is in some ways an autobiography of who you're not. And I found your take on Neil Gaiman's structure really unique. You managed to map a course of 75 issues, much like Sandman, with one special, Nirvana, much like Orpheus. But at no point did Lucifer overly lean on the laurels of what Neil Gaiman's Sandman had designed initially. Was it hard breaking free of you know, the, in many ways, father of modern myth, Neil Gaiman, a man who has so reshaped fiction, was it difficult finding your footing for Lucifer? I guess, to begin with, I wasn't even trying to break free. I, I was trying very much to, to write in the spirit and in the uh, the tone of the original, to create a continuity. And I think if you look at Morningstar Option, and if you look at uh, Six Card Spread, you know, the, the, two, the two first arcs that I wrote, they're borrowing Neil's voice, they're borrowing Neil's cadences, borrowing Neil's structures. Obviously, I draw on Neil's structures throughout. But I think it wasn't really until um, Born with the Dead that I kind of had the confidence to start not pulling away um, from that template, but start creating my own spaces within it and start developing my own universe within the Sandman universe, or at least my own sort of test lab for some of the themes and, uh, and, and characters that I wanted to explore. It was, you know, it was a joy. Um, I was far too, I was having far too good a time to actually be terrified even. Um, if I'd stopped to think, you know, that I was following in, in Neil Gaiman's footsteps, um, I probably would have been paralyzed, but I, I, it was just a blast. The whole thing was just um, a dream come true. You know, I thought then, and I still think now, that Sandman created, um, it, it, it created a kind of Kuhnian revolution uh, in, in comic storytelling. Neil was doing something that nobody had done before. I mean, you could argue that Alan Moore gets close to it and something, but I don't think we've had before uh, a novel or a novel sequence told in comic form over that sort of scale and told in that unique way of um, intertwined storylines and characters and arcs. It's almost like listening to a fugue in music, listening to some, some kind of piece of Baroque music where the, the instrumental voices and the themes come and go as the piece continues. And I wanted to do, I very much wanted to do that, wanted to have a crack at that. So I guess, short answer, um, I wasn't pulling away so much as kind of um, reinventing a lot of what was already there. And, you know, saying that it sounds like a fugue, I mean, the first thing I think of is Preludes and Nocturnes being the first arc of Sandman. Right. In many ways, the final arc being Overture. And, you know, in, in saying that you feel like you were really true to the idea and broke out on your own, I, my favorite appearance of death ever is in Purgatorio. So... I feel like you did really take those elements and you really did sort of spread your wings. And there is something really true about maybe finding your own voice as the series goes on. But one of my favorite things is in Six Card Spread and how much your narrative voice of this idea of sacrifice and loss is central to a hero's journey is a, a very prevalent element of your storytelling whether it's Felix in his novels or it's Tom Taylor, who that absolutely, that now there is a Tom Taylor writing comics that makes my life so much harder on Google sometimes, <laughs> right? But, you know, that idea that loss generates future is such a prevalent element of your work. 
And is that an intentional thing or am I just, you know, saying a thing I've noticed? <laughs> I, I think if you're going to tell a story, I mean, I, well, I think the way I wrote Lucifer, I wrote it as kind of a meditation on free will versus determinism, addressing the question of how far any of our actions can ever be free. And I was, I was kind of tackling that on, on different scales to some extent. And it, it, it sounds, it always sounds weird when I say this. But to some extent, Lucifer is every man in that he's a person trying to break free from parental influence, trying to find um, a way to just be himself and not be an echo or a kind of um, a semi-semi-programmable subset of his father, which is obviously particularly challenging when your father is God and literally created the entire universe and is omniscient and knows everything that you're going to do before you before you do it. But I think it's to some extent it's something that everybody faces. Uh, the question of how far the origins for your actions, the origins for your motivations, lie outside yourself, and that's kind of um, it's kind of a tragic, a tragic atmosphere, if you like. It's 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 a way of looking at the world that um, that tends towards um, tragic rather than comedic stories. I, th- I think a lot of my characters are trapped in situations that they didn't create they're overwhelmed by forces that are bigger than them and they're trying to find some some kind of autonomy for themselves and often that entails sacrifice often you need to you need to cut off the limb that's trapped you need to lose something in order to get free and i think that's really true of both tom taylor and elaine in the pages of lucifer who makes a really beautiful mirror for lucifer in that regard where that idea of bigger than life expectation and free will action sort of come together. And on the subject of Tom Taylor, the unwritten is in many ways, by my by my personal opinion, like such an important meta statement that allowed comics to continue evolving. And I would have read a thousand Tommy Taylor novels. It <laughs> wouldn't you. have even been an issue for me. Now, with Unwritten, you know, Unwritten crossing over with Fables, which was like the craziest thing at the time, I was at the Comic-Con where Karen Berger announced that, and that's actually the day I got to meet her, and uh, I there's a picture of me, like, crying as she's being very nice about it. <laughs> Can I but, tell you, as someone that had just read Fables and not Unwritten, that that was wildly confusing from the other end? <laughs> Oh, yep. no. I was the other way. I had stopped reading fables. <laughs> now, that, that's sort of a question. How did Unwritten kind of come together and then in many ways kind of end very, I don't want to say abruptly because Apocalypse was 12 spectacular issues, but I felt like uh, I could have read a million more issues of Unwritten. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about Unwritten and, and that process? Yeah, so um, Unwritten took an awful long time to happen. When Lucifer was wrapping up, uh, Peter Gross and I were talking a lot about what we would do next, and um, we were both of us taking it for granted that what we did next would be with each other. We'd really enjoyed that collaboration. I mean, I, I love everything I've ever done with Peter. I think he brings out the best in me, and I think he enjoys um, drawing from my scripts, partly because we work in a very, very collaborative way. With motor, most artists, I'm fairly prescriptive, but with Peter, the script is kind of a starting point for a conversation, and in a lot of, in a lot of ways, it ends up in a, different, in a different place and a better place than it started. Um, so we, we thought we'll definitely do something else at Vertigo. And we pitched a lot of stuff. We pitched an idea, it was rejected, we pitched another idea. There was a period of like a year and a half, a little bit longer, maybe getting on for two years, when we were pitching and just hitting a brick wall. Um, and we were kind of dismayed at that. Um, 
He didn't know he didn't know how to proceed with it. And in the end, what happened was um, Peter went away and did American Jesus with Mark Miller. I went to Marvel and did a lot of stuff there. Uh, and the whole thing was in abeyance for a while. There was a long time when it felt like a long time when we didn't have a vertical vertigo book on the go at all. But then um, we met up at San Diego Comic Con with Pornsack, Pornsack the Shed Show, um, the Vertigo editor, uh, and we started talking about uh, about a couple of ideas. Peter had an idea about following a character in, in real life and then following the same character within a narrative that was based on their life, but like exaggerated, distorted, changed a lot of things, uh, and, and then intertwining the two narratives until the reader wasn't sure what was true and what wasn't. And I had an idea for a story that was about the um, the magic trumpet in um, in Indian mythology, which is blown when one age of the world ends and the next world begins. And I had an idea about a character blowing that trumpet and changing everything, changing the lives of everybody else in the world except himself, and then trying to find the people who he loved in this new world that he'd made. And Pontac said, jokingly, maybe you could put the two stories together. And so we started to think about how you would do that. And that was the seed for Unwritten. But then the convention ended, we all went home again, um, Peter went back to Minnesota, I went back to London, Pornsack went back to, to New York. But Pornsack said, keep on talking. Um, what I'll do is I'll phone you up, uh, I'll, I'll hook you both in, and then you can keep on talking as long as you like on DC's Guide. But let's see if we can turn this into a proposal. And at a certain point, I'd been reading the biography of uh, Christopher Milne, who is the Christopher Robin of the Winnie the Pooh stories. And I threw that into the mix as well. Christopher Milne, you know, famously a guy who um, is only known as a fictional character in stories made by his father. And he absolutely hated that growing up. It was a curse to him. Um, he was bullied by kids at his school because in the, in the Ernest Shepherd illustrations, little Christopher Robin looks almost like a girl. They were sort of macho shitheads and they, they teased him about that. They bullied him. He said, when he wrote his, his own autobiography uh, as an adult, he said that he felt his father had stolen his childhood from him and left him nothing but the empty fame of being his son. So we um, we worked that. Imagine if your father, instead of writing um, Winnie the Pooh, had written the Harry Potter sequence or something very like it, a story about a boy wizard. So it grew from that, and it grew quite organically from that. We had a, a lot of it planned out. We always knew what, roughly where it was going to end up, but we also knew that we could we could go anywhere we liked on the way. We could visit any stories that we felt passionate about, because in a lot of ways, it's a story that is a love letter to the stories that have meant something to us. We had ideas like at one point we were going to have Tom trapped in a Jane Austen novel, uh, but then there was a lot of Austen stuff going around at the time, so we decided not to do that. But it was... um. It was kind of a void of discovery, and and yes, we could have we could have carried on for a long time, for a lot longer. There was a point where we were seriously discussing doing all of the Tommy Taylor novels as as graphic novels, um, which was a crazy crazy idea, which would have been really really fun to do. Um, but uh, at a certain point, we thought we should we should probably wrap this up. We can still we can still revisit the universe, but probably we should uh, we should bring it to a conclusion. Uh, and that was what that was on written apocalypse, just like one year one year of stories to kind of nail the original plan and bring Tom's story to a to a conclusion. And I love hearing how much of your experience with Peter Gross is collaborative. I'm also a pretty significant Peter Gross fan. Some of my favorite issues of Books of Magic ever are his era, uh, and sometimes when he had uh, Temujin come in and do guest pencils, 
and this sort of idea of a larger-than-life fictional character looking in on his own life is very true to a lot of Peter Gross's narrative storytelling uh, across the years. And hearing that you guys are a collaboration and not just writer and artist, like, makes my world. And I, I need to let everybody ask you about X-Men because that is a thing that we do on this show. I have one final thing. I have been lucky enough to speak to every main writer of Hellblazer ever. And right. you are the you are the last piece of a really significant puzzle in my life. <laughs> and I I have gotten the the luxury of asking all of these incredible oh again, no, I'm missing Denise Mina. I'm missing two people, yourself and Denise Mina. And once I get to speak to her, I'll have everyone. I think my question for you is when you think to yourself, who is John Constantine? What version of the con man comes to mind? Do you see the street magician? Do you see the guy, like, you know, sleezing his way through society to do what everyone else won't? Or do you see the down on his luck guy who just can't seem to get it right? I guess I see him as. Um... The way Neil described him in the Books of Magic miniseries is the laughing magician. Um, he's somebody who doesn't just talk to gods and demons and angels. He talks back to them. He's flippant. He's sarcastic. Nothing impresses him. He's humanity flipping the bird to, to eternity. That's, that's John as I see him. Wow. That's, you know, and everybody's had an amazing answer. Uh, I think Garth Ennis's answer was something just like, I mean, he's an asshole. Like, I mean, like <laughs> he just had no patience for my question in the best possible way. He was like, Can we be fair, though, that that's Garth Ennis's answer for every main character? He <laughs> that there's a story uh, that Alyssa told me that, because I, I said, I have to know, was the 90s at Vertigo like the actual fairy tale version of the Daily Planet that exists in my head? where the writers run in with, I got a story idea. And there's just like Karen as Perry sitting at the desk going, approved. Like, <laughs> is, is that what it was like? And she took this beautiful beat of silence and then said, it was even better. And like, I sat there just holding my chest. And she's like, basically, it's exactly what you think. We're all sitting around and Garth Ennis comes in and please forgive the accent, Garth. I think she's even like, Garth, I'm so sorry about the accent. But he comes in, he goes, I got a fucking idea for a story. And like, it is, it is just so magical. It was. It was an amazing time. I, mean, I, I, I was uh, on the other side of the world, but when I dropped into the DC offices, it always felt like stepping into an alternate universe. It was just you know, too good to be true in a lot of ways. I, I, I can't even. Well, I've, I've talked a lot about this universe, and I know these two guys have as many questions about X-Men as I have about Vertigo, so I want to make sure that everybody gets their voice heard. So let me pass the mic over to Drew and Josh for a bit to ask sure. some serious questions about some serious mutants. And Thank you, Nico. And I think Vertigo into X-Men is a great transition because when you first came on to the X-Men line, uh, you followed a fellow Vertigo writer in Peter Milligan, who right. had uh, an absolute home run uh, in his X-Force Ecstatics run and then was just finishing up on the main X-Men book in a less acclaimed run that you were going to follow up directly on. And so It was a soap opera! It, that's exactly I, what it was, yes. I didn't say it was bad. I said it wasn't the wild smash that Ecstatic was. <laughs> um, and and no offense to many, many writers, it wasn't what Supernovas would be, which, uh, you know, you came in kicking the doors down. Um, but what was that transition like? And we love the inside baseball stories here, you know, um, 
in terms of with Marvel editorial going from, you know, following Milligan uh, with yourself um, and you coming in and, and starting off your run with uh, Supernovas and, you know, the characters and direction that uh, you were going to take them. So the way this happened, I'd always wanted to write superheroes. Um, I, and obviously I wanted to write Vertigo as well. And that was um, that was something I was incredibly happy uh, and proud to do. But I, I had a hankering to write superheroes. I'd, I'd always felt that um, superheroes is a, superhero stories are a, a genre that comics invented more or less. And they've always had comics as their center of gravity. No matter how many movies or TV series or novelizations you get, comics are where superheroes live. Um, and I'd grown up reading those stories, and I really, really wanted to tell some. So I was pitching stuff into the DCU, uh, some some stuff to the Superman office, the Batman office. Uh, I wrote, actually wrote some issues of Firestorm, but they were spiked. Um, and it seemed at a, at a certain point it felt like I was kind of typecast. There was, there was a, a, a compartmentalization at DC that meant I was always going to be the Vertigo guy. And it was really hard for me to um, to be anything else there. And then again, at San Diego, I met Axel Alonso, who was, of course, another um, Vertigo emigre uh, who'd ended up at Marvel. And I was I was telling him about this. And he said, well, look, you know, I know you're, you're exclusive to DC at the moment. If you ever find yourself not exclusive to DC and you want to do some superhero stuff, um, call us up. We'll see what we can offer you. And uh, I thought that was really nice. I didn't necessarily think it would turn into anything. But when I got home, um, I got a phone call from Joe Casada, who, which was very short and sweet. It just said, "What Axel said goes for me too." So there, there was in mind. And uh, it was another two years after that. I, I let my exclusive lapse, which felt like a big, a big deal, felt like a big risk. I tentatively called Axel, and he said, "We'll be in touch." And it was actually Ralph Macchio who got in touch and, and asked me if I wanted to do some stuff for the Ultimate line. I did Ultimate Electra and Daredevil. I did Ultimate Fantastic Four. But then there was a day when I got a call from Mike Marks. I got a call from a guy claiming to be Mike Marks, offering me a monthly X-Men book. <laughs> I, I thought this was this had to be some kind of a gag. I almost told him to... to I almost said something rude. Uh, <laughs> but it really was Mike Marks, and they really were offering me Adjugas X-Men. So... I, I pitched this sort of wild, crazy idea. Obviously, this is when House of M is wrapping up. We're into the decimation. There are not many mutants left. So I pitched this idea for a team built around Rogue that would be like crazily unstable. That would be um, half villains, half heroes, already falling apart uh, under its own internal tensions, even before it met any actual um, uh, antagonists. And Mike said, yeah, fine, let's do it. And uh, yeah, so it happened. It, it it was it was an amazing amazing thing to get to do. I I, I you know, the the, the X Men were not the first super team that I loved. The first super team that I loved was Fantastic Four, but the X Men followed soon after. And I was very young when I was introduced to them, and they'd always been a part of my life growing up. In fact, it was the X Men that got me back into reading comics when I was in my late teens, and I briefly stopped because I discovered you know sex and drugs and rock and roll. Um, I was walking past the news agents. I saw an issue of X-Men, and it was actually from the Starjammers uh, uh, arc, the original Starjammers arc. And the cover was uh, giant fists smashing down and the X-Men being scattered like, uh, like, like nine pins. And I didn't recognize any of the characters except for Cyclops. So I picked it up out of curiosity, and that sucked me back into reading comics again. So, so the X-Men had always been there for me. And the experience of sort of adding, you know, adding bricks to that structure, adding stories to that mythology was um, was just glorious, absolutely glorious. Yeah, it's funny that, so we're talking about like getting into the X-Men and stuff, it's kind of funny. My very first X-Men issue that I ever picked up was actually 
your part of your red data, um, the second oh, issue wow. of your red data <laughs> arc. But one thing I wanted to ask is that um, you created the the, build it, the villains, the Children of the Vault, um, in the beginning of your Supernovas arc, which are now featured heavily um, in the X Men. And I just kind of wanted to know where did you come up with the idea for them, and kind of each like not each character, but you know the characters and their design or their you know personalities and stuff. I, I guess um, I, I wanted I wanted to create uh, a new antagonist. I, I wanted to, even though I absolutely loved uh, Grant Morrison's run on New X Men, I kind of wanted not to do what he'd done. What Grant did was to take each of the big, the big sort of um, uh, uh, the temples of the franchise and build a story around each one of them. So you know. He has his big Sentinel story, he has his big Phoenix story, uh, his big Magneto story, and so on. I kind of wanted to do something a little bit quirky and off to one side. So I thought, I'll create something new. And um, I'd never read the story, uh, was it uh, the Neo? The Neo? That, uh, Chris yeah, the Neo was read. part of Chris Claremont's revolution from uh, right. Uncanny, uh, like 381 to like 389 and X-Men 100 to 109. So I'd missed, I'd missed that. And so I thought the idea of post-humans who were not mutants, uh, a different group of post-humans, I thought it was a pretty neat idea. I didn't realize that it had been done before. So I created the children. I decided to base them out of a South American country and give them uh, Latin names, Latino names. So I just cobbled it together very quickly out of whole cloth, tried to give them like uh, crazy um, over-the-top powers, make them a really formidable force, and then just uh, throw, throw my team into the middle of it. But um, it, it, one, of the, one of the great moments from that first year was um, when I was about four or five issues into that arc, someone sent me a link to a Wikipedia page for the Children of the Vault. I was already canonical. I was in canon. And, and that, that, was, that was a huge thrill, you know, the idea that, Stuff that I was creating had become had become part of the had become accepted parts of the story. And I think we see that a lot right now. So much of your stuff, like I mean, Drew just pointed out, Supernovas introduced the children. We see the children. North Star is back in a big way. Your work with a number of characters would ultimately go on to keep showing up. That's the that's the wonderful thing, though, if you think about writing within a huge franchise like the X Men. That basically. You're always you're always planting seeds. Just the big strength that Chris Claremont brought to the X Men revival when you know he uh, when he picks it up. Um, he's he's constantly throwing out these seeds, which you'll pick up in a year's time or two years time or three years time. And you're you're doing that as a writer. Sometimes you'll pick the ideas up yourself. Sometimes you leave the book and then you see somebody else pick something up and run with it. Something that you that you'd set up, and that's a lovely thing to see. It was great that um, after I left Legacy, that Sai picked up some of the stuff about Blindfold that I'd kind of lay, lay it in. It's um it's a wonderfully kind of it's it's like a like a uh, like one of those acts where a lot of people are juggling with the same set of balls or uh, or batons and throwing stuff to each other across the stage. Sai loves Sai loves him some blindfold. Um, he's so much. He's using her again right now in his new series. Uh, so or he's also using Legion, who you at, yes at the end of your legacy, right? The end of your legacy. I don't mean like you're done. <laughs> you're at your legacy run. And you did some really, really interesting and, and long-lasting things uh, in the book, as, as Nico said. And you had some major stories, starting with Supernova, uh, Messiah Complex coming after, which is, um, you know, one of, you know, the top X-Men crossovers of all time. Um, you had Age of X in there. Now, we saw, you know, for my memory, your use of Cable as a supporting character, which is a very difficult thing to do, because Cable is a character that when he kind of comes into a story, tends to have a very large gravity um and stories 
I think because of his complicated past, just tend to revolve around him. But, uh, you know, using him so well as a supporting character um, for a while in your X-Men run, um, bringing Magneto back to, you know, his role as, um, you know, the as a, a leader of mutants who was willing to make the tough decisions, um, you know, something that we'd kind of seen writers vacillate back and forth between, you know, he's he's the leader of the evil brotherhood, muhaha, to, you know, he's this conflicted person who's going to do whatever it takes to make sure these tragedies never happen to his people again. Um, so, so many great, you know, threads and, and moving the X-Men line forward as a whole. I have to say, and I, and I have to stop and talk to you about two particular issues that are my favorite, because it, it's it's not going to be the first, second, or even third time that I brought them up on our podcast. So longtime listeners know how much I love um, 215 and 216. Which... I literally had a note, make sure Josh talks 215, 216. Yep, <laughs> no, that's literally in my notes. I'm not you knew that. that. There was no way we were getting out of this without going into those. Um, so is that uh, is that when Professor X goes back to talk to Scott and Emma? Is that yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's I love it on so many levels. Uh, one of the things that bothers me about Xavier depictions by some writers is that. You know, he has so many dark sides. You know, we've seen, you know, so many different dark sides of Xavier in Onslaught or in, you know, being uh, controlled by the Brood or in Cassandra Nova. Um, But just that, you know, like Xavier isn't the best guy. Like Xavier has made a lot of really bad decisions and people like to kind of sweep those away as no, no, no. Like that was a corrupted dark side, you know. Um, and, you know, you you really gave us a a full fledged, you know, a kind of morally imperfect Xavier that he was and tying it at the same time and with a fantastic, empowering Emma issue that perfectly mirrored what Grant Morrison did to her with Jean Grey in 139, having her be the aggressor in this case, dragging Xavier through his story. Um, it's it's two of my just absolute favorite issues, not just from this era, but all time. I, I love you. those so much. And I, I would love to hear you talk about, because I feel like there are, unless I'm reading into it too much, that there were lots of, of layers in what you were building there in that story. Yes, I mean, there definitely are. I mean, th- throughout the, um, the Xavier run on uh, Legacy, Xavier arc on Legacy, what I was kind of doing was... Um, I was taking that character who you know, had been sort of like um, brought near to death, but also um, uh, shown to be so, so terribly morally compromised uh, in, in the years before uh, I took over. Uh, I wanted to, to have him kind of revisit all the different aspects of his past, and I wanted him to try to find um, a moral core to himself again. And obviously that wasn't going to come without uh, without pain, nor should it. The whole idea was to kind of like drag him over the coals and you know, to disassemble him and then allow him to build himself up again, but allow him to do that by paying the price for the bad things that he's done. There was a there was an exchange between um, Xavier and Scott and Emma right right at the start of my run in Supernovas, where um, Scott is is talking to to uh, Rogue about creating a team, and Professor X's take on what Rogue has just done is that she should actually be reprimanded uh, rather than being rewarded, and he steps in to to explain this to Scott, and Scott cold shoulders him and more or less says, yeah, you're not you're not in charge of the X Men anymore. It's not your call, and you're nobody to uh, to lecture anybody else on on morally questionable actions. And he walks away, and and Professor X uh, asks Emma to intercede on his behalf. And Emma says that the X Men are what you, he's what you made him, 
all the X-Men are what you made them, but you do not get to change your mind. Only God has that prerogative. And in some ways, I was, I was sort of, those two issues were sort of calling back to that conversation. Uh, and they were also part of a process that ended in the issue when um, Xavier goes back to the Acolytes, goes back to Exodus and, and dismantles the Acolytes without, without actually throwing a punch, just, just basically talks Exodus around to admitting that um, just mutants fighting mutants is not the key to the future. But if mutant kind is going to survive, they have to find a new model for their interaction, a new set of rules, rules of engagement. So it was, it was, it was all part of that conversation, I guess. And it made sense to me to to have Emma become the arbiter between Scott and Professor X and can kind of uh, be the one who is setting the parameters in that issue. It has a weird echo in uh, the the issue very, very shortly afterwards where Professor X makes the juggernaut again, which is also to do with sort of like taking taking a, a fight out of the out of the sort of taking a, an argument out of the plane of reality and playing it out in a sort of hypothetical space. Yeah, kind of in a way that just went on in like the the issues prior. Um, hmm. So right after that, we go, you start the rogue storyline, and she's like a major character in that run. Out of the two hundred mutants you could have picked from, what was your interest in rogue, and like why did you pick her? Someone who hasn't been seen in like a, a leader light before. I guess it was two things. I mean, I I, I was looking in, in in all of the characters I chose for my initial lineup. I was looking for characters that I could that I felt I could voice convincingly. Characters I felt I I, I got them, and therefore I could write them. Uh, with a degree of authenticity, but I was also looking for characters who who had kind of like um, uh, storylines trailing, who had arcs that would be interesting to pick up, characters who I could move on. And I, I, I'm not saying that I was always successful in doing that. I mean, you mentioned Cable earlier. Uh, I think my use of Cable was was problematic. It was problematic in a couple of ways, and it, 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 um, it dismays me to this day that because I put Cable into um, into Adjectiveless X-Men, uh, they wound up maybe in the Caesars Cable and Deadpool comic, which I was loving at the time, absolutely loving. Um, but they just decided if he was going to be in one of the frontline books that, that they, they would end uh, that book. At least I, I, I think that was a factor in the decision, uh, and I hate I kind of hated that. But that, that's what I was doing. I was looking for characters who I could voice and characters who I could move forward in interesting ways. Obviously, some of the stuff I did with Rogue didn't take in the long run, but I think I took it to some interesting places, and I don't regret any of the decisions I made. Not even not even pairing her up with Magneto, which is probably the most controversial thing I did. I'm sorry, big Magneto Rogue couple fan here. Don't really understand <laughs> the gambit love. Just don't get it. Uh, all about that Magneto and Rogue, totally speaking my language. I, I got such a lot of hate mail for that. It was um, it was kind of a shock. I mean, I, 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 I sort of uh, yeah, I cut my teeth on the Vertigo message, message boards where everybody was everybody was extremely refined and polite. Um, yeah, Rogue, Rogue, the Rogue Magneto pairing kind of unleashed um, unleashed hell in some ways. You were actually kind of notable for several unusual pairings, also Mystique and Iceman, which you know. All things said and done, we're actually a very queer show. Like uh, the majority of us are queer, and right. almost half of us are Latino. So, like you know, it's it's an interesting makeup. And so, Iceman would get would get pretty gay shortly after you wrote him. He would still yet have uh, one more significant girlfriend, and Kitty Pride happened. And it, you had Mystique and and Bobby. You had Magneto and Rogue. You really 
that's a very like sort of vertigo writer thing coming in and saying, let's try some unusual pairings. And that's something that your run is kind of remembered for that unusual dynamic of bringing Lady Mastermind in and really shaking up the status quo personality wise. And I, and I guess it was, uh, again, it's, uh, it's a question of continuity with what we came before. You know, you said that um, Peter Milligan had, uh, had turned uh, Adjectivus into, into a soap opera, uh, which I think is, is, a, is, a, is a really good way of looking at it. Um, so to some extent, I was, um, I was paying a little bit of a, a quiet homage to that. Um, but also, I think it's just, it's just interesting to, um, to see, you know, to play what if, to, to put together people who um, you wouldn't necessarily imagine would have common ground. Uh, one of my favorites was, um, was Psylocke, Psylocke and Iceman in Age of X. Yeah, I, I was I was just going to jump in yes. with obviously uh, Scott and Frenzy in Age of X and, and yes. how you yeah, nailed that one and then yanked it away from us right after. You know, uh, I had a great conversation uh, on Cerebro uh, the, the, the other week uh, where we were talking about exactly this. And um, I said uh, that, that uh, Scott and, and Joanna were kind of like uh, the, the, the irresistible force and the immovable object. Um, and I got, I got the answer, yes, but they're both both. You know, if you t- in terms of powers, Scott is the force and Frenzy is the, uh, is the rock. But in terms of their personality, he's the stoic one. Uh, and she's the kind of completely uh, out of control one, which is, uh, which is nice. The, the thing I, I loved about that was that I'm a huge Scott and Emma fan. And so as someone who loves Scott and Emma together, the fact that in a few issues, you could make me so mad at Emma for dismissing and the way that she treated Joanna at the end of Age of X, even though I love Scott and Emma, was just, I mean, you had clearly gotten me invested in something that wasn't even like my main investment. Um, very, in a, in a short amount of time, Age of X isn't like a super long book. Like you, you laid that down and, and hit it strong very quickly. It's uh, yeah, it's only six issues, but it was actually going to be shorter than that. It was, uh, it was Daniel Ketchum. Uh, when, when I initially pitched it, I pitched it as a three issue off, and he said, "Don't you think there's more there?" Uh, and he gave me he gave me the alpha issue. He gave me the three issues of New Mutants because we were in, be- in between creative team on New Mutants, and then Cy came in to write the uh, the Avengers storyline. It became it became something bigger. Um, it got a lot of in-house advertising, and I, I just had such a blast with that story. But yeah, I, I, I think Scott and Scott and Frenzy are, um, are kind of right at the heart of it. I really enjoyed writing her as a character. She comes and goes all the way through my art. She's there very near the beginning, uh, and she keeps on popping up through the Professor X issues, and then she comes in again at the end. And, you know, I really love, 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 love that Age of X wasn't the thing it was in. It didn't become what it was intended to be. Like... It's something kind of amazing. I made a post saying, you know, I love Age of X. I miss Age of X. Happy anniversary, Age of X. And the number of people that interacted with it, comics professionals that were like, yes, yourself included, which is how we were able to book this incredible interview, which, again, thank you so much for. And just seeing this outpouring of love for an AU, you know, Age of X really is like that six issues. But think about Age of Apocalypse, which is you know, at this point, over 100 issues. And people are still talking about Age of X as well. You know, it's got that days of future pastiness where it's, I'm glad I didn't say days of future pastiness, that (laughs) really captures what people love about an alternate universe. There's a what-if element that plays against expectation. And that balance is super important. One of the things that I think stands the test of time 
about your work on Rogue is balancing our expectation of who she is with exactly where she found herself. Something I discussed with Alyssa is that she was actually only the second or third woman to ever write Rogue like properly as, as a writer. But wow. that frequently led to a lot of writers writing, unfortunately, somewhat now viewed as problematic storylines where Rogue is a victim of being her gender. One of the things your X-Men legacy sought to do was to redefine characters without the notion of engendering them. Your Xavier shows a sense of masculine and feminine vulnerability that we're not used to seeing from such a flat, usually, character. Your rogue was dynamic and strong in a way that was militaristic, that sort of superseded the notion of her gender. Is that something that you go into, this idea of, I want to strip back your notions while playing with your expectations? Is, is that a big part of your writing, or is it just, we're lucky? It's it's not a it's not a conscious thing. I guess I I don't really believe in gender. Uh, I, I certainly don't believe in gender essentialism. I think it's bullshit. Um, people are just what they are, and I think um, you know there have obviously been societies that didn't have the same kind of um, the same kind of respect for the idea of, of gender as a binary that we did. Societies in in which um, it was sort of acknowledged that everybody had a little bit of um, male and a little bit of female in them. Uh, and where you found yourself on that spectrum might, to a certain extent, dictate the role you played in society, but it certainly didn't, uh, it certainly wasn't circumscribed. So, um, I mean, I, I'm the least, the least masculine man you're ever going to come across, I think. Um, so it's, it, 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 it it's just it's not something I think about particularly because it's not a um, it's not a determinant in personality as I see personality if that makes sense it totally does and it it just occurred to me that your X Men Legacy was the second time that the second X Men book got a an adjective right because you said you know I, I, was, <laughs> I was writing adjective list and I was like yes he's a fan because you know the mm -hmm. the, the, the entirety of X Twitter and X community calls it adjective list and it went from adjective list to new. And then back to adjectiveless for the short Austin run, which became the not a short Milligan run. And then we wound up with Legacy. And in the time since, the writer of New X-Men has since come out as gender fluid and is a yep. they. And, you know, Grant Morrison is, I kind of like to think of New X-Men as an invisible cell. If nice. you like, re-encode it like that, and that uh, Cassandra Nova is doing a sigil, to transform the state of the universe. There's like this powerful through line there. So I, I tend to think that Grant Morrison is smarter than me any day of the week, but like this idea that two of the voices who both so shaped that series as seminal as it is, bad choice of words, both sort of don't play by gender rules is probably a huge determinant in the fact that they're remembered for their Gene and Emma and then later on Rogue, you know, they're strong women in each of those runs. That's a very kind thing to say. Thank you. I, I, I'll take it. <laughs> I would add in too that that's extremely important that, you know, to have the sensibilities like you and Grant brought to a title that featured so many strong and prominent female characters and yet was so infrequently written by female writers. Um, you know, I, I love when Elisa came in here, um, you know, I've read a thousand comics with Rogue in it. And, you know, Elisa explained her basic view of Rogue and had me realizing that I knew nothing about the character and had been nothing. seeing her wrong all this time. Um, I felt like a fool. I felt like a fucking fool. <laughs> it was amazing. And also just very 
it made you kind of look back and go, man, like some of these characters have just, they've, they've been missing that voice. And we're, we're incredibly grateful to be in an era of X-Men right now where we're getting a lot of those voices. But right. so the work that um, people like you and Grant did was really important, um, especially for a lot of us who, you know, do not fall kind of relate predominantly to heteronormative narrative. Right. Thank you. And, you know, it, speaking of narrative, it would be super crazy to think that, you know, your entire body of brilliance exists solely in one medium. I myself, and I've mentioned them four times, I've cosplayed the character, right? Like literally went online, found that you could order whistles in different keys and then <laughs> had to find the right key, ordered the wrong one on Amazon more than once. I, so I've cosplayed Felix. Like I'm, I'm a little attached to the character. A friend That's of awesome. mine is a librarian in upstate new york and he made sure that the the, everybody heard about these novels oh you read comics you probably read a comic by this guy check out these novels and one of my best friends and he was like i don't know how you don't know these and i i read the first two because that's what had come out at the time and like it was one of those things where i would reread them just to like because there's i I don't have the next one yet i don't have the next one like it was it was an intense relationship because i had missed your john constantine for so long not that i mean pete milligan I'm if I'm I Pete Milligan is like my hero (laughs) you Pete Milligan Neil Gaiman you guys all wrote this collective character group that are are so significant to me and uh not that Pete Milligan's work on Hellblazer didn't do it for me but that was right around the time your novels were coming out it was like it's more of John without being John it's a new take on the character and you know from that novel to your newest novel series do you want to talk a little bit about whether it's Felix or Trials of Coley uh some of the stuff that comes together for what makes your novels different from your comics (laughs) that's an interesting way to frame it because I I totally agree with what you said earlier that um the cast of novels are kind of like John without being John uh I was obviously writing Hellblazer at the time when I started writing Caster and Hellblazer was my foot in the door I'd, I'd, I'd written um, a couple of, well, more than a couple. I'd written about four or uh, three and parts of a fourth uh, novel when I was in my 20s. And they were terrible. They were just really, really badly structured, which didn't stop me from sending them to publishers and collecting rejection slips. Um, but I, I, I kind of, it was through writing comics that I, I kind of finally got my head around story structure. I finally got to a point where I could put um, a, a novel together with confidence. Because the difference between them is that, you know, a comic is a, a frame of a fixed size. It's 22 pages or it's 20 pages. And you've got to tell your story within that uh, within that scope. If you run out of pages before you run out of story, too bad. Uh, you're stuffed. So so I'd learned to sort of um, to cost out a story in terms of beats and to, to, uh, to think consciously about the placing of those beats. Um, and I, I, I had an editor. Well, I, there was an editor I'd met uh, before I, I, I started work on Hellblazer, Darren Nash. And when I was writing Hellblazer, I showed him some of my uh, my Hellblazer issues, and I said I could write a novel or a novel sequence that was kind of like that in flavor. Um, and he commissioned the cast of books. So it definitely does start out, I think, um, as being very, very Hellblazer inflected. I think it probably goes its own way um, over the course of the five books, uh, but but it has a lot. It still has a lot of Hellblazer in, in its DNA. I frequently actually say, "Do you like the Conjuring? You'll love these," because I feel like it. The novels, because at this point they're uh, a few years old, but they were thematically very much where cerebral horror was headed, especially mm-hmm. in terms of emotional beat, character development, pacing, and the idea of cost and responsibility. 
And I feel like that that is definitely a through line we see in modern uh, cerebral horror fiction. That it definitely it's it starts out maybe John adjacent, but it finds its own footing, and its footing is a very modern voice. It's it's um I, I think the, the point where uh, Felix and John have most in common uh, takes us back to what you were saying earlier about loss. Uh, every victory they have is a pyrrhic victory. They always come away from every uh, from every big fight limping. There's a, there's always a sense that you can't be who they are without paying for it, and that the, the, the price is always going to be a little bit more than you're prepared for. Um, but yeah, so 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 my prose work definitely sort of arises out of my comics work uh, to to a very large extent. Uh, but something happened to me around about 2010, 2011. I started to started on a collaboration with my wife, Linda, and our daughter, Louise. We wrote two novels together, uh, City of Silk and Steel and House of War and Witness, which were, broadly speaking, their fantasy. They're kind of, one of them is a historical fantasy, the other is kind of a, an Arabian Nights pastiche. But they're, um, they're portmanteau novels. They, they, they have lots of stories within stories, lots of switching of narrative voice, switching of pace. Um, and I came out of that in a very different place. I was writing for three years. I was writing with two women who already had, had their own voices, had their own, their own sort of ways of approaching story. And we had to triangulate in a way of a form of storytelling that worked for all three of us. And it was coming out of that that I wrote Girl with All the Gifts. Um, and it was also coming out of that that I got my new pseudonym, which is M.R. Carey. Um, we were talking about this right at the start. My middle name is James. The reason why I'm M.R. Carey is because there's already an M.J. Carey on, um, on Goodreads, and she writes bondage pornography. So, I did this. Uh, <laughs> I made this happen. You're so welcome. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so I think everything I've written since Discovered All the Gift is kind, of, uh, is kind of different. It's different in terms, it's more experimental in terms of voice. So the, the, the Rampart trilogy, which is the most recent thing I did, is kind of me doing a post-apocalyptic Huckleberry Finn. It's a story told by a character who is barely literate, who has learned very late in life to read and write, and has his own kind of hacked about, ham-fisted way of using the language. And, but but this, at the same time, there's a kind of poetry to the way that he gets things wrong. And it's, uh, it's set uh, three centuries in the future. Our world has ended in climate breakdown and also in war, uh, resource wars. And there are a few pieces of technology that have survived through those 300 years for various reasons. Um, and ownership of those things basically um, determines your, your status in this future world. And the main character is somebody who um, steals a piece of tech, thinking it's a weapon. Uh, but actually, it turns out to be a, a music player, a media player, uh, who becomes his best friend. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, I, I'm really, really proud of how it came out. Uh, Particularly proud of it as an ensemble piece. There's a, there's a, a sort of strong cast of characters. They're all given, um, they're all given their weight as the story goes on, including um, Manono Aware, who is the, uh, the the personality inside this media player, who is a, a dead Japanese pop star whose personality was sampled just before uh, just before she died. And who has spent 300 years sitting in the dark by herself with no user to talk to, uh, and then and then meets Coley, the protagonist. The idea of emerging voices and transformative narrative is, you know, very true to your work over the years that we've already discussed. And I love that, you know, especially as fans of yours, we look for that, you know, huge team. Because even though Lucifer was Lucifer, 
Lucifer was an ensemble around Lucifer. Your Hellblazer yeah. had some of the most consistent uh, number of recurring figures of almost any of the runs. And we've praised how much your X-Men book felt like a team book, even when it was focused on one character. So hearing you say that there's this idea of a big cast and you know unique voice developing, I definitely think that this sounds like something that all of us would be like, oh, Mike Carey, more Mike Carey. <laughs> and, you know the idea that it's also serialized that there's a, you know a trilogy of novels when that's you know something we've come to expect from your storytelling this bigger building idea now how would you say cuz i you know i've done a bit of research on the on the title and one of the big things that i think is really interesting is that uh, from what i understand that there's a lot of like the idea of nature is almost a danger and how the world has kind of turned on people and that's really a popular idea in fiction right now in a very accessible way. We actually see the X-Men doing it with how many evil plant creature people there are right now. And mm. I think that there's a lot to be said in the way that we've started to view post-apocalyptic horror in new ways. It's not all zombies, you know, the Walking Dead style. Is the post-apocalyptic element something you wanted to play with or are you just excited about any sandbox? No, I, I really love post-apocalyptic stories. I think, I think they're, they're just a great way of, um, they're a way of posing a really interesting question. Uh, post-apocalyptic worlds are worlds in which um, civil order has broken down. Most of us in our day-to-day -day lives, we enact the roles that are given to us. Uh, and as we go through life, we're following scripts. We're following um, sets of rules for interaction. And the question that you get in the question that gets answered in post-apocalyptic stories is what are we when those frameworks and those rules fall away? What what parts of the human kit are essential and what parts are accidental? What parts are just um, byproducts of the society in which we're we're brought up? It it, it and, you know, that includes includes things like uh, like gender and sexuality and the the the, 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 the weird taboos that form around those things. Um, there's, there's one, one of the characters in Coley, one of, the, one of the most important characters outside of Coley himself, is a young trans woman, um, trans girl really, named Cup, who Coley meets. She's, she's part of a, um, a cult, a sort of weird um, religion that's formed around a, a maniac named Senlas. And she, she, she leaves the cult and, and, and travels onwards with Coley. Um, and I wrote her initially... I, I, she was she was meant to have a much smaller part in the story, but I found her a really really interesting character to write. But I knew that I I kind of I couldn't write her without getting some help because she was she was a, a, a trans woman on the cusp of puberty. She was going to go through male puberty. I had no idea, uh, or only the very very most limited idea of what that might mean. So I approached um, Cheryl Morgan. Uh, and asked her to be a sensitivity reader on the books, and she was amazing. She became actually you know, um, much more of a collaborator on the books. She she uh, gave me lots of stuff to read. Uh, she steered me towards online accounts that she thought would be useful, and she kind of, in, in many ways, gave me um, a framework through which to uh, give me a lens through which to view uh, Cup's predicament. I don't know how I got onto that. Uh, yeah. Uh, taboos and um and um you're selling us on the book that's how you got there we're all about it <laughs> taboos and shibboleths um there is no there are no there are no uh, there's no prejudice against trans people um or, or against uh, against gay people in in Foley's world 
because I, I wanted very much to, to, to stress the point that there's nothing automatic about prejudice. Prejudice is learned from, it, it's something you pick up from, from the society around you. And Coley's never been exposed to it, so it never occurs to him for a moment that there's anything, you know, anything that, that he has a right to an opinion on, on, on Cup's uh, uh, transitioning. Uh, and there's a point in the third book when he meets somebody from our world. He meets somebody who um, is, is, is somehow managed to manage to survive in some form uh, into this future world, and they have a discussion about this. So it's, it, I, I, I think I think post-apocalyptic stories are always about the here and now. They're always a kind of mirror held up to the here and now to our own world. That's a banal thing to say, but it's true. Yeah, we've talked about so we've talked about your Vertigo line, um, your X-Men stuff, and your prose work, but you also did work with Boom um, with Suicide Risk, and um, it actually relates to X-Men a lot and kind of the concepts we've been talking about. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk about kind of uh, suicide risk for a bit. Um, uh, I just stumbled across it randomly um, at a bookstore and I saw your name on it. So I picked it up and then a friend really got me into it. Um, so I was just wondering if you could talk about uh, suicide risk for a bit. Yeah, so it's a, a really fun project. Uh, it, it's, I, I met up with uh, Matt Gagnon uh, in, at a, a New York comp and he invited me to pitch to Boom and suicide risk was the, uh, was the story I pitched. It, it, it grew out of an earlier story. The, the original form of it was called Fault Line, um, which was just the, the, the idea that uh, there's another world that sends its criminals through to our world, its superpowered criminals through to our world, which is kind of the um, the big the big MacGuffin in Suicide Risk. But I also like the idea of um, of Leo's uh, predicament, a character who ha- has like incredibly uh, incredibly um, extreme superpowers but can't use them. Without, without endangering himself. It's, it's called suicide risk because every time he uses his powers, there's a good chance that he's going uh, to die uh, as, a, as a result. Um, again, it's an ensemble. It's, it, it starts out as, um, as, as his story, as a requiem story. But as it goes on, it becomes much more about um, uh, Leo's wife and daughter, uh, about Diva, um, about all of the about, about um, just a feeling all of the all of these other people who've had their lives stolen from them and then uh, discover uh, who they who they used to be and what they've lost. Um, I wrote it for two years. I think it, it, it ran through only twenty five issues, but it was it was a blast. It was it was, it was really fun because I was kind of creating an entire superhero universe um, in miniature and trying to suggest you know trying to suggest these this cast of thousands. Who are just uh, just off stage here here in the background of the story? Yeah, if you if you're a fan of uh, listeners, if you're a fan of Mike's era on um, on X Men, I highly recommend Suicide Risk. There's a lot of um, really good themes in there. And speaking of Mike's era on X-Men, Josh, you had said you wanted to bring something up that I feel like I probably spoke over you trying to bring up a thousand times. I'm really sorry. Um, But you had made a really interesting point about a, a book we both love, No More Humans. Yeah, so after your era, uh, you came back to do a follow-up to uh, Brian Bendis's Battle of the Atom. Uh, right. With the which original... had a follow-up by Pete Milligan in All New Dupe. Yes, yes. Which, oh. that's, that's right. You I know can't what? fucking stop with these connections, man. This is the bomb shit. I'm having the best day. We're, we're going galaxy brain here today on Access for Podcast. Um, but no, uh, Nico and I are big fans of No More Humans. Um, and I think one of the most disappointing things for me is the way that it was kind of treated in the canon afterwards. And I know you mentioned that, um, you know, you've followed or you've seen some of uh, what was done with your characters like Blindspot afterwards and size work. And I'm wondering, um, in terms of something like No More Humans, where 
your final act and your resolution there was kind of not even just hand waved away, but like explicitly stated as something that hadn't happened in later books as they were bringing the um, the grown up Jean Grey back uh, in mm. her maxi series and in Matthew Rosenberg's Venus Resurrection. Um, and if you would comment on just the editorial process of writing something not just outside, not in because it's not an ongoing, right? It's it's something that's kind of outside, but very yeah. unlike, um, you know, the the original original graphic novel, um, God Loves Man Kills, which feels like it could take place anywhere. No More Humans takes place in a very specific narrow oh, yeah. window of time in canon. Not as specific as uh, All New Dupe. Uh, <laughs> which literally tells you it takes place between these two panels on the same page of an issue, but, um, you know, but takes place in a very specific time and has major ramifications and consequences for characters that then would go on to not be characters. Um, I guess that, that whole process and the editorial connection there. Yeah. I mean, I, I have absolutely no grounds for um, a sort of complaint or bitterness there because the, 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 the whole thing arose out of, um, you know, I'd left the books. I'd, I'd, I'd left the books with regret. Um, the reason why I stopped writing X-Men was because I'd, I was making a go of the prose writing and the screenwriting and <clears throat> I was still writing unwritten. And it came to a point where I either had to stop uh, writing Legacy or stop writing unwritten. And because Unwritten was um, the thing that I co-owned with Peter, I didn't feel like I could leave that unfinished. So, so I had to, I had to give up Legacy, and I was sorry to do so. But um, Nick and Daniel had always said, you know, you can come back. There's no reason why you can't sort of uh, come and have another bite of the cherry. People do. Um, and I carried on talking to them. And at a certain point, you know, uh, Daniel called me up and said, "Is there anything you'd like to, you know, anything we could sort of tempt you to do?" And I, I, I said, but there's no, I, I can't, I can't do a, um, I can't do a book that's in, that's, uh, that's, that's part of a line. I can't do a book that's in continuity because, um, I haven't got the time to kind of get on top of it all, uh, because it's, it's always like kind of running alongside a moving train and trying to jump on. I think that's the exciting thing about writing for, um, for a big franchise like the X-Men, but it's also the challenging thing. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to half asset. I didn't want to like, um, come back on and do a, do a sort of lane or, or, um, subpar job so they said we'll we, do a we appreciate that because not every previous x writer has felt that way so thank you very much <laughs> so, so so they said well why, why not do a graphic novel you know do an ogn um and it can be in continuity to the extent that it can sort of it can bounce off something that's happening in the books now but it can go off and do its own thing and come to a, a discrete end um and so that 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 was very much the the kind of understanding when i when i started to write it so the fact that it's kind of been written out of continuity since is is almost it's kind of poetically fitting that it should be in some ways but it was still great to do no not, not least because you know salvador la Roca, he was the first artist i ever worked with at marvel and he was also the last artist I ever worked with at Marvel. That's great. Well, now I have to ask, you know, there's this amazing new title floating around the X office, X-Men Legends, which has already seen two pretty significant names return in the form of Baby Nicieza and, you know, everybody's queen of all godmother X-Men things, Wheezy Simonson. So, you know, we know Peter David is coming back. If If Legends were to say, hey, Hey, Mr. Carey, not MJ Carey. She writes bondage. Would you like to come back? And would you like to tell a story? Is there a story you feel you have left in you to pick up and be like, "Yes, I have a ball. I want to run into the end zone." 
I I would love yeah I mean I would not say no there's no way I'd say no if they offered me that uh, do I have a ball like ready to throw into play no I don't um, but it would be cool it would be cool to come back I mean it's just it's just always um, it's just always a joy to write those characters and and this feels like you know such a such an exciting time it feels like a real renaissance for the X Men we feel that way very much as a fandom uh, our show had begun by covering the original classic Claremont years. And when Hoxpox, the House of X Powers of Ten era began, we just we just threw shift gear into overdrive, and we jumped forward forty years, and we just started running this Hickman thing, and it has been such an exciting thing to see how your work has not just survived as fans of it at the time, but how your work has actually come to majorly influence what's going on in X-Men. We make a pretty big joke that uh, it frequently seems like Magneto and Xavier in the Jonathan Hickman House and Powers era are, are kind of like a, they're a pretty comfortable gay couple. You know, it's, they're oh. very leaning on each other, very, very healed from who they were. And I don't think that would be possible without the effort you put into repairing that narrative uh, one of the things that a lot of people felt, I remember actively being on the CBR forums at the time, and the big high praise for your book every month was, it's like somebody finally said, continuity is such a mess, let's fix it. And <laughs> that sort of fixed work really has continued on, and it feels almost like your Band-Aid was made of nanites, and they just kept replicating Till the Band-Aid was big enough to heal some, you know, editorial wounds, not attacking any writers or anything at all, but over the course of a shared universe, damage gets done because of misaligned objectives and uh, missed opportunities. And so that somebody was able to come in, that we're still talking about your work so much later, and that both uh, comic writer Joe Glass and Alyssa Quitney were both like, wait, there's more Mike Carey out there. I got to go read it. His X-Men, you know, that we've had on the show have so reacted positively. It's just such a pleasure to get to ask you about this stuff. And I just want to thank you again. Thank you very much for that. I mean, um, talking to um, to Connor Goldsmith on Cerebro and talking to you guys today is kind of like really, it's it's kind of like it's a, it's a time warp in a good way. It's taking me back to uh, to that time in my life. And it was, yeah, it was a really, it was a really special time. Yeah, we, we hold your run in very high regard, you know, for, for us, it's, you know, in those elite kind of high level runs on and definitive runs on X-Men, like Claremont Morrison, what's yeah. going on now with Hickman and your run on Carrie, um, you're, you're on Carrie, <laughs> <laughs> your run on Legacy, um, absolutely. So we had on um, a little while back, uh, uh, VC's Virtual Calligraphy's Ariana Mar, who did an amazing job of really opening our eyes to kind of the inner workings and the process of a letterer. And you had mentioned earlier that writing comics at Vertigo really helped to sharpen and, um, and shape your, your form and structure as a writer. And Vertigo is known for, especially, you know, the, the early era of Vertigo, for having some of the most visceral and impactful lettering. And mm. I was wondering how, how yes. for you as a writer, um, that process of visualizing the pages and working um, with a creative team 
um, transferred or impacted you um, writing in a more mainstream uh, superhero book afterwards, or or even just during the time, you know, getting to work in Vertigo uh, with that type of creativity at lettering? Well, yeah, you you mentioned Todd Klein, which is sort of like you have to go there, don't you? It was astonishing to uh, to work with him. The, the way that he would create bespoke fonts for specific characters. Um, and we, 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 we leaned hard into that. Um, there were storylines where, you know, you'd have um, Cestus of the Gym mock um, a character who can transform into um, whatever whatever she last ate. So you'd meet her in different forms, but you'd know it was her because uh, because of the, 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 the lettering, because of the font, um, and Lucifer likewise. It, it, was, um, it was absolutely amazing working with, with Todd. I, th- I think what, what Vertigo did for me, and Elisa, Elisa has a... Played a very very large part in this. It made me aware that comics are made out of pages, and that you can't write a comic without thinking of it in terms of pages. So um, the first thing I ever did at Vertigo, the first thing I ever wrote at Vertigo was um, Morningstar Option, and that had fully painted art by Scott Hampton. I mean, right out of the gate, there I am working with Scott Hampton. Um, but I was writing it. I, 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 you know, I'd never seen a comic script, and I kind of had Watchmen at the back of my head. Um, maybe I had seen the script for Watchmen One, which is at the back of um, the original um, trade collection of it. Um, so I'm writing. I'm not not exactly writing nine panel grip, but I'm writing these ridiculously high panel counts. And Alisa called me and reined me in. She said, "Think about this." This is painted art. If you're not giving it room to breathe, then you're doing it a disservice. So uh, right, right, right with that, right with that in, in, in mind, and think of each page as being keyed around a panel, uh, and, and I'd always know what that panel is. So I, what I started to do, and I still do it now, I started to draw the comics before I scripted them. Um, nobody ever, nobody gets to see the drawings. They're terrible. They're, they're, they make stick men look like Michelangelo. They're, they're, they're really, really crude, basic drawings, but they allow me to—they allow me to think in terms of the visual, um, the visual flow first, and then key the words to the visual flow. Um, and they also—they allow me to think about pacing. They allow me to think about framing, uh, about page turns, and therefore about using the structure of the comic to handle um, uh, reveals and so on. Um, and, and, and then you're, you're, kind of, you're kind of making a map of the story before you script. It's a pre-scripting stage that makes the scripting itself effortless. And that, that was something that I learned at Vertigo and something that I've used on, on every comic project I've done since. I mean, I can literally point to that in your Vertigo work. Like, it, it, hearing you say it, it's one of those things where somebody was like, yes, that's the color blue. And now you're like, oh, that's what everyone's always talking about. Uh, you said that, you know, you, you think about painted art, like your work with John Bolton versus mm. your work with Dean Ormson. I'm going to say his last name wrong. Um, Ormson. Ormson, thank you. Versus your work with Peter Gross. It's, you clearly script to the depth of the artist. And, you know, Peter does these big, beautiful fantasy sequences where Dean does a lot of really minutia of grossness. Like he really gets in there and makes that, that squish and that squirm feel like a squish and a squirm. And, you know, John Bolton is just, you know, the the master of painting. So like, it's, it's so interesting to hear. Yeah. I can see that in your work. What, what, what I do is if I'm writing for an artist I've never met before or never worked with before, I'll write very, very full script. Um, I mean, be really um, uh, specific about a lot of stuff. And then I'll loosen up as we get into a kind of double act moving forward. With Peter, as I said, it's become with Peter and with um, Mike Perkins, both of whom I've worked with at like every stage of my career. 
we've become very, very uh, relaxed and the scripts are telegraphic. The scripts will just give a very, very uh, short impress impressionistic, um, this is the effect I want kind of thing. Uh, and then we'll, we'll actually sort of uh, discuss the script and we'll work, work from it, but uh, allow it to, allow it to grow in a, in a, uh, in a, in a more organic way. Um, I think, I think that's, that's, that's one of the unique things, I think, about comic storytelling, that because it is, it's a collaboration of a different kind than the collaboration you get in a movie or a TV, uh, TV show. It's interesting uh, the way you describe that because I have the No More Humans hardcover in front of me and it includes your script in the back. And I was noticing that, you know, your script is a little more sparse in terms of direction. Hold on, I'm opening mine. Hold on, but I'm opening it, mine. <laughs> it definitely has some interesting descriptors you know, in terms of on like the page three reveal of Cyclops' team of X-Men, and you're just like, you know, like draw them looking, you know, badass poses. But as you, you mentioned writing for it and having had a relationship working with Salvador La Roca in the past, that is, that must have been a, you know, description, you know, Salvador La Roca would love just being told, draw them looking badass. Like, that is, <laughs> that is right up his alley. Yeah, case in point. <laughs> Oh man, like I'm so glad that Josh was like, it's in the back of the book so that everybody could like read along. Uh, that's awesome. I really appreciate that. Um, it actually randomly, and it's so, I meant to say it earlier, there is something so important about the fact that your work actually is almost this idea that prejudice is learned is such a humongous element of your work, and it stretches right back to the first arc of, Vertic of uh, Lucifer proper where, I mean, six cards spread, I can't think of anything that defines prejudice is taught, not in, not, you know, internal uh, with those characters and ultimately where everybody goes, you know, I know the book is 15 years old at this point, but I don't want to spoil anything for anyone. So yeah, you know, it's, it's really fascinating how you are a writer who truly writes from a philosophy and that philosophy doesn't really seem to waver at any point in the map of your fiction I've encountered. I think I think it's um it's it, it it comes out in everything you're right I think if you 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 have a view of the world and it doesn't matter whether you set out to address a theme or whether you're just setting out to tell a story you know tell a good story tell the best story you can I think your worldview is imprinted um, on what you write and I, I I guess I also feel that this is going to sound bullshitty but I I, I sort of feel that. Um, you have a responsibility for the stories that you put out into the world. Um, bad stories do harm. I mean, this was kind of um, the, 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 the subtext of the unwritten. Bad stories poison people. Bad stories uh, have people. So you, you, you have a responsibility to tell stories that will... Um, do, do, do you know Cat uh, Vonnegut, the, the, the American um, novelist and journalist Cat Vonnegut, who sadly is dead now? Um, he coined the uh, the term FOMA. FOMA are lies, but but they're but they're healing lies, beneficial lies. He said, "Live by the lies that make you brave and strong and happy." And I think as writers, those are the lies we should be trying to tell. The Judge Seuss arc of Unwritten really talks about how you can take a story and and make it hurtful, as yes. well. The idea of the canker in the story that you know ultimately did significant damage to the interpretive zeitgeist of what it was meant to be i, I is... really think that that's really prevalent in the work as well i mean it's, and kipling's you know the uh, the leviathan 
material yeah. also this idea of a story bigger than itself and what that represents well and as as i mean many of us who relate to disenfranchised minority communities you know which is a, a common thread among x-men fans you know it goes to chimamanda ngozi adiki's um concept of the danger of a single story right that if you tell a story about a you know a white christian heterosexual american male and he's a bad person, it's not going to change what people think about white, Christian, heterosexual American males, because there are a billion other stories, and it has a very small impact on the shape and the perception of that type of person. But yeah. if you tell a story about a, a Congolese woman, and it's the only story someone has ever read about Congolese women, it is going to completely shape and... Um, affect what they think of all Congolese women because that is their only story on it and bad stories of can be very dangerous in that respect so uh, apropos of that we've just had the uh, the twitter storm about um about desire in the Sandman tv series on netflix you know the um, the announcement that uh Desire will be portrayed as non-binary and will be an actor by, will, be, will be played by a, a non-binary actor and there's a sort of explosion of, um, of protest on Twitter by people who apparently were not aware that that is exactly how design <laughs> in the comic. Um, and Sunrise is like, big news. It's, it's the only it's the only kind of way that makes sense, you know, to 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 portray desire. It, it, it would kind of be insane to do anything different. But yeah. yes. And now we always do play a, a very short game. So uh, would you be willing to just uh, answer a quick question about X-Men favorites? Okay. Cool. It's, it's a really light game. Uh, I tend to try and remember to mention it, but when I forget, I then feel really dumb. Um, and this is one of those things where Kristen Stewart, and Kristen Stewart should be quoted a lot. She got her own Versace show. So we, we can <laughs> quote Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart says that she hates being asked what books are you reading? Because then for the rest of your life, you're going to hear, oh, and she was a fan of that thing. So we don't play like that, right? In this okay. moment, right? If you could, you know, uh, put one mutant front and center in Krakoa, one person who you think, not that even you necessarily want to be the one to write it, but someone who should shine in this greatly changed age, who would it be? Now, this is for everybody. So Drew, Josh, and myself are going to answer as well. Um, to get the ball rolling, for me, I think this would be a really great time to finally explore a character like Amelia Vaught. She is such mm. a unique character who's had such little panel time, and I think she's due for a frenzy moment, and I think that would be really cool. I think she has cool-looking powers, and I like it when we can take women who have played this role of kind of uh, a male's ornament and we can give them the story they deserve for being a character with motivations and feelings. What about you guys? Who do you think could stand a little bit more Krakoan spotlight these days? Well, I can go. My, my answer is probably the same answer I always have, which is... it is, Rhapsody? I w could not say Rhapsody, because Rhapsody got in the spotlight last <laughs> week. You go! I know, brought I so Rhapsody back! I was so happy! Arthur um, and I had a conversation about how happy we were for you. I, I, I'm a huge fan. I love Paige Guthrie. I think some of it was just me kind of hitting puberty and going into adolescence as Generation X was coming out um, and falling in love with Paige Guthrie and having, you know, Jono and Chamber being my kind of character my that I related to and entered into that. I always want more Paige Guthrie as long as she isn't um, having sex in the air above her mom's house. Um, <laughs> 
and so I, I would love more of her back in finding, you know, trying to reassess, you know, very analytically trying to reassess and find exactly what the right place for her to succeed and, and play a role with that, you know, that that strong type A have to do this right, have to succeed, um, you know, in a, a newly changed world that she never anticipated. Shall I, shall I go next? Absolutely. Please do. As the guy okay, who's well, written X-Men, you kind of get to go whenever you want. I used um, I used Indra, um, Paras Kavaska, in, in exactly one storyline um, on Legacy. And he was always a character that I wanted to come back to. I think he's fascinating because he comes from um, a non-Christian, non-American tradition. You know, he belongs to a Jainite family. He has um, a strong adherence to... The central tenets of the Jainite faith, including the um, you know first do no harm, the, the 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 requirement to be a pacifist and not to hurt any living creature. Although sometimes in his time with the X Men, he has um, scraped scuffed across the edges of that of that um, of that commandment. I think it would be really interesting to see him um, in the Krakoa context. Oh, I would love that. Mm-hmm. For me, it would be Chamber. Um, I actually that's, I don't really know. T- too much about him i I haven't read generation x and it is very much on my um to read list um and i don't know that i've ever actually read that much with him in it that i can think of at the top of my head you know chambers are really i love your choice of chamber Mm. uh, chamber hugely imprinted on both josh and i and the cool parts of chamber grow up to be josh and the other parts of chamber grow up (laughs) to be me so it's definitely a great choice i love that But his look for me, like his look is like if I was an X-Men, I would, you know, his look is would be pretty similar to mine. So. And all of his action figures <laughs> were so super cool. Oh, yeah. so awesome. So awesome. They were so cool. They had the spark inside. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. They were great. Chamber was my first cosplay as a kid. That's cool. amazing. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to keep that mental image forever. I, I made myself a, a Gen X belt buckle out of a Pringles lid, and I had a black leather jacket, and um, I rigged a contraption where I could have a flashlight kind of hanging from my neck and shining through like a sheer scarf that covered my face and went down to my chest. And so I had like chamber, like the light kind of uh, visible through the scarf, and I was chamber for Halloween one year because I wanted awesome. to be chamber. That is amazing. Well, Mike, I want to thank you so, so much for giving of your time so freely today. It has been like, I mean, literally one of the things that your run comes up one of the most of any run on the show. And it is just such a pleasure and an honor to get to talk to you about your work. Now, not to be, you know, too ridiculous with honor, but yeah, I mean, it's work that brought us all a lot of joy that we've spent our free time discussing for some number of years. So I really want to thank you for coming out and for all of the amazing work you've done on so many titles that have meant so much to all of us. Clearly, there's titles that I didn't know you worked on that Drew brought up and incredible points I had never even considered that Josh brought in. And I just want to thank you so much for giving us so much to talk about all these years and so much to enjoy. Well, thank you, Nico. Thank you, guys. It's been wonderful to talk. Really enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Cheers.